Good morning. Nice to see all of you. So, moment of honesty, uh, I'm getting through a little bit of a cold here, so if you hear my voice uh, sound a little bit lower than it normally is, this is not just my smooth, sweet-talking voice, this is me actually having a cold. So we're going to work through this together this morning, yeah? Cool. Today, uh, we wrap up this series called One Another, and it's all about us being a church. And I don't mean us as Casas, I mean you, me, each of us, right? We're, we're part of this thing that is called the church. And, and it's really, really important. It's not just a thing that we attend, it's something uh, that we are. And so today, when we go to look at this, we're gonna look at a passage out of the book of First Peter. And maybe you've never read First Peter before, or maybe you're new to just working through your Bible. First Peter's found at the end of your Bible. Uh, it's written by one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Peter, and he writes to a very particular audience. A very particular audience. We read this in uh, 1 Peter 1.1. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. That's what your Bible says, right? Elect exiles of the dispersion. And if you find yourself going, I have no idea what that means. You're probably in good company, but we're going to unpack that. I want you to see the significance of who he's writing to. See, in the first century... Jesus walks among us like lives, dies, right? And, and a group of people come to follow him. And this early group of Christ followers, they, they had this passion in their hearts to love one another the way that Christ had loved them. And, and they recognized that this message isn't just for them and it's not just for people who are like them, but that it, it's supposed to, to go to the ends of the earth. It's supposed to get bigger and they're supposed to share this. And, and that the way you do that is by continuing to step into new moments and places with people and loving them one person at a time. They, they kept loving people into the acceptance and the freedom of Jesus Christ uh, in this, this powerful kind of way. And this group of people began a movement that we have come to know of as the church. And you're a part of this thing now. It's part of why you're here. It's who you are. But things got really difficult pretty quick. Um, there were a lot of really, really hard circumstances. During that time, the Roman emperor was basically seen as God, not as like the God, but as a God. And so you, you have to realize on the denarius, right? So if you ever read your Bibles and it talks about a, a coin, a coinage called the denarius, there was a picture of, of Caesar on it. And beneath it, it said, Caesar is Lord, inscribed on the coin itself, which is why the Jews had such an issue paying taxes at that point with this particular coin, because they felt like it was like idolatry or something. Like, can I use a coin that says that Caesar is Lord? They struggled over this, right? They didn't know what to do with it. You know, in order to worship other Roman gods, it was common to practice temple prostitution with a temple priestess. And so if you needed to, to you know, make offering or sacrifice, whatever that is, you, you would go and engage in practices with a, a temple prostitute. This was commonplace. And if you did not do this, it could actually prohibit you from getting things like drinking water, from participating in commerce, from, from trading goods, from being a part of the, the larger marketplace and all these different things. Like it was, it was a pretty ingrained practice depending on the city that you found yourself in. There were different rules and, and things set up based on whose temple was in what city. And these early followers of Jesus, while being both civil and respectful, didn't follow the path of Roman nationalism at this particular time, because to them, Caesar wasn't Lord. Jesus was, right? To them, when they, they, they didn't want to worship Caesar because they worshiped one God and Jesus is Lord. Do you see? They, they struggled with this. They didn't go to the temple to participate with temple priestesses because they are the temple. They're the sacred space. Wherever they go, the sacred goes with them. And the, 
the love of Jesus Christ resides inside of them. Like they're, they're taking this with them. And so they didn't engage in these practices and they, they didn't do some of these things. And so as more and more people began to follow Jesus, as more and more people experienced this love and this kind of transformational grace and this new life found in Jesus Christ, it started to create some problems. And, and the Roman Empire, those who were within the Roman Empire that had this very like Roman Empire first type of mentality, they started to really struggle with Christianity and a heavy amount of persecution starts to make its way onto the scene. By the time we get to 1 Peter, by the time we arrive where Peter's writing this book that we're going to read a portion of today, the Roman emperor is a guy named Nero. And Nero does not like Christians. At one point, Rome is set on fire and a bunch of Rome, like half of Rome burns down. It's, one of the, it's like a massive event. And Nero has nowhere to blame this. And so who does he blame? He hates Christians. And so he actually blames the fire on this new movement of people the church. He blames it on Christians. And so animosity and hatred begins to rise. Nero, in the first century, decides that he's going to take Christians from their homes and dip them in oil. He would dip them in oil, cover their bodies, and then light them ablaze. And then he would hang them to serve as lamplight while he would have lavish garden parties. And they would be the lamplight for the party as people feasted beneath them. Like, this is a pretty crazy type of moment. Nero would take Christians from their homes and he would sew them up inside of animal skins and completely enclose them in an animal skin and then drag them out into the middle of the Colosseum where they would starve wild animals like lions or bears and then release those wild starved animals where they would go and then begin to devour what, whatever was inside of the bag, which was Christians. And I don't know what should be worse in that, which would be worse in that particular moment being devoured in that way or as you're being devoured, realizing it's to the sound of a cheering thousands of people that are using this as entertainment. Be tough, wouldn't it? I can't even wrap my head around this particular thing. This is why, by the way, in 1 Peter, maybe you've read this or you've heard this in the Bible, when he writes, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. He doesn't pull that out of thin air. He uses a very specific illustration because of something that they were facing, something that they were experiencing, walking through that was really difficult. So when Peter writes his letter, he's writing to a very specific group of people. This caused them to flee. So many of them ended up fleeing their homes, fleeing their lands, fleeing their places, and they began to reside in countries and in towns and cities that were not their own. It wasn't where they came from. They became known as the diaspora or the dispersion. So now go back to 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Who's his audience? To the elect exiles of the dispersion. He's writing to a group of people that are having a very hard time. This book is, is just couched with this audience. It's in the midst of a group of people that are having a very, very hard time. And their hope with great sincerity is that this won't last. You know, each of them believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. The first century church had no idea that we would be sitting here talking about like the book of Revelations or any of that today. They, they didn't. They firmly believed that Jesus was going to come back within their lifetime. And so they were just like, this is really bad. This is really hard. It feels like the world's on fire. It feels like everything is just run amok. But, but Jesus is kind of back, coming back. So they, they held on to this kind of hope that one day their Messiah was going to return once again and, and he's going to get rid of empire and move in a kingdom of love and grace where, where ultimately he rules over this forever. This is our now, but it's not our forever. And so they held on to this kind of hope within themselves. This is the audience that Peter finds himself writing to. And so what we're going to see in today's passage is that Peter writes to them about the importance of in this difficulty, in all this chaos around them, prioritizing life with one another. 
during a time that it was really hard to do. Because think about it, if you're there, if you're in that moment, what do you want to do? Are you like, you know what we need to do? Let's all band together. No, you're like, we need to hide. If you're honest, some of us are like, no, I have courage. You, you might, but you watch enough of your friends and family and your loved ones be persecuted or die. You, you watch some horrific moments in a Colosseum. You, you start to recognize somebody's used as a torch. Like you, you're tempted to put your head down. You're tempted to go walk away and be like, no, no, no. I just need to like build up walls around myself and I got to get out of here and I need to hide. And Peter writes to them in this and tense kind of moment that they're facing about the importance of being a one another. And I love it because in those moments, and I don't know about you, but I have found in my life that in these moments when, when things get this acute, sometimes there's this voice of clarity because it kind of cuts all the fluff and all the pieces and all the things out of it is it's like, no, this is what matters in life. When you're facing something to that magnitude, this is, this is what matters. There's a kind of distilled clarity with a group of people that are facing their own mortality here. You know, when I was 21, my grandfather had an aneurysm. And as such, he was gonna need to have emergency surgery. And the prognosis wasn't real great on this. They had to do surgery going in through his back. And so there was just a bunch of complications that could arise from that. And they, they basically said, you know, the odds of him recovering and waking up from this surgery weren't real great. And this led a bunch of us to actually buy plane tickets. It's one of those moments, right? Buy plane tickets and fly to Iowa or get in cars and drive to to kind of go have our moments because you just didn't know how this was going to shake out. I was living in Chicago at the time. My cousin was my roommate. And so the two of us borrowed a friend's car. Neither one of us had a car. And we jumped in the car and we drove into Iowa City where my grandfather was at the VA hospital four hours away. I remember walking into the hospital and the nurse is standing in there with him and her face perks up and she goes, isn't that sweet? These two young gentlemen care about you so much that they drove all the way from Chicago to come see you. And my grandpa was kind of a, a deep voiced brash man and I'll, I'll send Answer him, but he, he essentially goes, the heck it is. They think I'm going to end up underground. That's what he, he said. And she goes, gentlemen, come on in, grab a seat. And then she makes her way out. And I go and I sit down with my grandfather and eventually some of our other family members leave. And it's just my cousin and I, and we're sitting in here with my grandpa. And we took this as an opportunity to go, grandpa, tell us stories. Like, so there's this moment I've heard about your life, but I, I like can't piece it together. Share, I want, like, can I ask you questions? And he, he starts to share with us all these amazing stories about the life that he's lived. And he, he tells us things that we never knew and his perspective in moments that we just didn't even understand. And it was really, really wonderful. And I got this idea in my head. I was 22 years old. I had just gotten married and I was just on the, the verge of graduating uh, from school and like kind of all these steps, like on the precipice of, I'm gonna go start what hopefully becomes a, a, a longer, larger life here. You know, like that kind of idea and so I said, grandfather, like as you are, are laying in bed and you're thinking about this life that you have lived, what advice would you have for someone like me? You know, I'm just on the verge of getting going here. Like, what, what would you tell me about how to live a life well lived? And I'm thinking, here's a man who's staring into the face of his own mortality. He doesn't know if he's gonna be alive in a week from now. And he's just been sitting here thinking about things and going through all these meaningful moments and all this stuff. And so I, I'm just thinking, I'm gonna get a secret, like profound wisdom, truth, and like nugget right here. Like he's gonna tell me something amazing. And so I leaned in, right? I'm, I am excited for this. And I remember he laughed and he said, the heck if I know, Ryan. He goes, just keep doing, just keep going and do the best you can. You'll figure it out. I was disappointed because I thought I was going to get this nugget, right? Like this amazing thing that, you know, goes in a book someplace, that type of a deal. 
and, and I was a little disappointed. But you know, as I've reflected, as I've just gotten older, I guess, and I've started to reflect more and more on life, I think there was something really wise and profound in that particular moment with my grandfather, and I'm being sincere. You know, the honest truth is he didn't know what I needed for my story, and he didn't know what was going to be ahead of me. And the honest, he, he just didn't know. None of us do. But there is something very basic and very profound and very true about this fact that you just got to keep showing up to your life with a great kind of persistence and perseverance and day by day bring the best of who you are to that life. And in the end, that becomes a life and sometimes a life well lived, right? And so there's a part of me that just cherishes. I look back at that moment. I'm, by the way, I should share this with you. My grandfather survives that surgery, right? Yeah, because some of you guys I know are going to be like, well, did he live? Yes, he did. But I look back and I cherish that I got that opportunity and I cherish that I, get to I got to walk through that and sit in those moments because when someone's facing those kind of situations, there's just an honesty to it. There's a clarity to it. And I find myself wanting to lean in because I'm living a life right now and I want to glean wisdom from it. Do you know what I'm saying? That's why there's cheesy country songs like how to live like you're dying. And we all go, yeah, and resonate with these things. There's a part in us that knows some of this. And that's why today when we go to sit here, right, we gather together and we read the words of Peter and we're going to actually go and read a passage out of 1 Peter chapter 4. And when we go to read his words, I think I want to ask you, lean in. Because he's writing to an audience that's staring into the face of their own mortality. Peter is writing amidst a very difficult situation and all the fluff and all the potentials and all the things just get cut out in a way that there's this pointed kind of clarity to say, here is what really matters. Here's what a powerful life together looks like. Here's what this thing is. And for us, we may not be in the same exact situation, but I think we each have a life in front of us. And I think sometimes our life feels a little bit crazy. And I feel like sometimes we don't always understand what it means to be the church. We know how to go to a church, but what does it mean to be the church? What does this look like? What do we do? And I think there's something powerful and potent here. So I want to ask you to open your eyes and your hearts and lean in as we go to read some of these words that he writes, because I think there's something powerful for each and every one of us about what it is for us here and now to live a powerful kind of life. So let's do it. Let's begin. First Peter 4, 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. He really starts positive, right? But it's a big statement. Do you feel that? The end of all things is at hand. This is what he writes in verse seven. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter considers his audience and who he's writing to. And this is essentially him going, when you look around you, this probably feels as bad as it could possibly get, doesn't it? He's writing to this audience going, when you look around you, this probably feels like it's like the end of days. When you look around you, it probably feels like your world is on fire because it has cost you, because moments have happened and that is real and true and you're in it right now. And so what does he tell them? He says, be sober-minded and be self-controlled, which is essentially him saying, look, if, if your life has gotten so difficult that you're starting to realize that whatever life you have is precious and perhaps even limited, that in that particular moment, Stay alert, be, be clear-headed and be clear in your actions so that you continue to stand and step into that which matters most, right? Like be conscious in the decisions that you're making and those types of things because this matters. Stay focused on what matters most. And then as if, as if we would then get confused to go, okay, well, what does that look like? He then tells us in verse eight, First Peter 4, 8. He says, above all, as in here's what matters most. Above all, he writes, keep loving one another earnestly. 
since love covers a multitude of sins. And I think these people would have been looking at him going, Peter, I don't think, like, have you seen life? (laughs) There's a ton of things that matter right now. There's a ton of things that are crazy, right? The world feels like it's on fire. We have lost friends. We have lost family members. We are struggling. We're probably stressed out and turning and biting each other now because hurt people tend to hurt other people and it just gets complicated and the best of us isn't always what makes its way forward. Peter, we need something here. This does not feel safe. Have you met Nero? That needs to stop, right? What do we do? Because wouldn't you ask that same question when you're in that same type of situation? If you find yourself scattered, I mean, just imagine for two seconds, you find yourself scattered from your homes and you're no longer living in Tucson or wherever it was that you grew up or were brought up because you're now living as a refugee in exile some other place and you're trying to keep a low profile so that you don't face the same kind of heavy persecution that others around you have and you're looking for like, I can't do this forever. What is the game plan? What is it that we are supposed to do? What's the plan? It's a very honest question that I feel like most of us would ask, right? And Peter writes to them so overtly, so clearly, and he says to them, above all else, meaning before you make any other plans, here is the plan. Before you decide what's most important, let me clarify it for you. Before you decide the path that you will take, let me tell you what the path looks like. Above all all else keep loving one another this is what he challenges them to keep loving one another and this brings me to the first point i want to make here this morning and it's this a powerful life is one where love is put above all else and i think this is really important so i want to say it again a powerful life is one where love is put above all else. I want you to notice, Peter says, keep loving one another. What does that tell us? That tells us this isn't something new, right? He says, keep going, keep loving one another. This isn't something new. In fact, what Peter's speaking to is very old. It's because when Jesus was walking among his disciples, right? And he's teaching them. He looks at them at one point and he says, here's the most important thing. And he looks, he says, a new command I give to you. And you're not allowed to do that, by the way. You're not allowed to just give new commands unless you're the son of God and he does it, which is a big moment. This devout group of Jewish people, he says, a new command I give you is, and this is the thing I want you to follow. What? Above all else. And he says, love one another just as I have loved you. And then he says, and if you want to know if you are my follower, if you want to know that you are living a life devoted to me, here's how you'll know it, is the world will see you loving one another with the kind of love that I love you. And that's going to speak to them about your relationship with me. Meaning this, if we really take seriously this idea that we're to love God, if we really take this idea this seriously that we're to, we're to love and follow Jesus, then the primary way that that gets expressed out is by the horizontal relationship we have with one another. The way we love God is by the way we love others. And that's why he says, by this, the whole world will come to know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Why? Because it is above all else. Jesus essentially says, if you love me, then follow this. Siri is responding to me. This is the plan right? This is the plan because you were the church, because they're the church. So Peter isn't saying something new. He's telling them something old. And he's saying, the plan is still the plan. 
right? The strategy is still the strategy. Hardship doesn't change the plan. Suffering doesn't change the plan, right? Empires, politics, and regimes don't change the plan. Even Nero can't change the plan. The plan is still the plan. Above all else, keep loving one another. And then he puts this little word at the end of the sentence that I just wasn't going to address at all, but I think it's kind of important. He says, earnestly. You know, that's a combination of care and willpower, right? When, it, when we talk about this word earnestly, what he's saying here is it's not just, and love one another above all else, like this sweet value that you just kind of carry in your life. He, he's actually saying with great fortitude, with great perseverance, with the kind of energy, this is when you put your willpower, your heart, your care, your mind, all of you into something earnestly get after it like a little kid scavenging the house for candy. You know what I mean? Like earnestly. He's saying, love one another, keep loving one another earnestly. And I find myself wondering at times, is, is that how I perceive love? Is that how I wrestle with love? Is there a part of me that approaches my life earnestly with this? Because the plan is still the plan because regardless of what the world looks like, a powerful life is one where love is put above all else. I have to be honest. I wonder, just for me, really, if this would have been hard to take in. Oftentimes when I read the Bible, I don't just read it as words. I try to imagine myself being one of the people that heard this at this point in time and kind of put myself in their shoes. And the reality for me is, I think this would have been a tough one to swallow. I do. Because the world is crazy, right? This isn't just like, you know, in between like my Starbucks latte and like some other things I was worried about today. Like I kind of was thinking through this. No, the, and I know I don't mean to minimize, but you think about it. Like their world is crazy. They're going, I no longer live in a house that I used to live in. I no longer have the home that I used to live in. I've seen people struggle and I've seen people die and I've, I've got real issues and real problems. And quite frankly, the world was on fire. And now we're getting blamed for it. And it feels like the world is still on fire and it's coming for us. That's how they felt. And we're talking about real friends and real family members and real things. You ever have a moment where you get to in your life where you look at the world around you and you find yourself going like, I need something now. And somebody looks at you and they're like, well, just keep walking out this path. And you're like, I appreciate what you're saying, but this is really hard right now. And I feel like I need something right now. I think that's how I'd feel if I was this original audience at that point in time because I just couldn't help it. I'd look around me and I'd be like, you don't, you don't understand. The, what do we do with Nero? What he's doing isn't okay. I mean, the sin is rampant here and it's, it's causing brokenness and chaos and death and destruction. Like this is, this is not good. What do we do with the, the rising culture around us that seems to keep hating us in this particular regard, even though we're trying to love them and, and, and do this. So what do we do with these moments where there's pain and there's suffering, and there's hardship? What do I do when I look around me and I see sin and different things playing themselves out? I see problems and brokenness. God, I need something that's gonna change my right now and I need to know what that new plan is. Have you ever had the moment where you look at your life and you find yourself going, love is important, love is a big deal, but like I need something now. I need something more. I need something to deal with this. If I'm honest in my honest of hearts, I have and I do at times. But what about this? Love is great, but what about this thing? And also 
Man, if we're starting to get scared and we're starting to get stressed, and what's this even mean for this thing we're doing called the church that's just getting on its feet? It's just getting off the ground. How's this even supposed to look? And we need something that can fix all of this. You know, you may not be living in the first century and you may not be facing what they're facing and you aren't. When was the last time you looked around you at the world around you and you just found yourself going, something needs to change here? When was the last time you looked at your world and you felt like something needs to change here? This isn't okay. Or when was the last time you looked at moments and pieces and just felt like, I- I'm struggling with this. I'm not okay with this. God, why aren't you doing something? Or what do we do? And you're trying to figure out what your course of action, what is the plan? What do we do here? Right? And if you're really honest, if I were to look at you in that moment, because you go to a church where we talk about love a lot, don't we? Yes. Talk about love all the time. And we might look at you in that moment and be like, love people. And you might find in your own heart going like, yeah, but also, right? Because I need something here. For those of us that feel this tension inside of us, I want to once again read the end of verse eight. First Peter 4, 8 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter doesn't just tell us to keep going. He does. He says, keep loving one another, right? He says that, but it's not all he says. He doesn't just tell us to love one another above all else, to prioritize it above all else. He he says that, but he doesn't just say that. He tells us why. What's he say? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, when I first read that passage, it didn't really make, like, it didn't resonate that strongly with me if I'm candid with you. When I first started studying it, I started to ask myself, well, what does this mean? Love covers sins. And I started to look at this maybe the way that you might, because we're English speakers and we use the word cover over a certain way. And so I thought of it like this. When, have you ever had a stain on your carpet, right? And, and you tried to spot treat the stain and it won't go away. So you bought an area rug. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Some of you guys are like, now you can't come in my house. You're going to lift my rug. You're going to see the things, right? Because you didn't make the stain go away. The stain is very much still a part of the carpet. You weren't going to rip all the carpet up and redo your house. So you you just bought something to cover over it, right? Or what happens when like, here's another way. What happens when like a politician or a leader or somebody who's like, you know, powerful and influential does something terrible or wrong. And then they use the means at their disposal to make sure nobody finds out about that. We call that a cover up. Do we not? A cover-up. Why? It's not that the bad thing went away. We just put a blanket over the top of it so nobody has to see it. Because when we talk about something covering over something, it's like a blanket on a stain over the carpet. And that's how I read this. That's how I understood it uh, when I would envision this idea of love covering over a multitude of sins. But that's not what the Greek word here actually means. The word used here actually means to make disappear. And in its etymology, it contains this idea of to obliterate. I want you to think about this for a moment. Friends, love isn't what we use to ignore sin. Love isn't what we use to hide from sin. Love isn't the blanket that we take to cover it over so that we don't have to look at it and God doesn't either. Love is the very weapon that we wield to obliterate it. Love is that which makes sin disappear. This is why it's the plan. This is why it's the path. This is why it is above 
all else. A very long time ago, I had a friend in my life who was in a relationship, sort of. He was actually cheating with somebody, right? So I, he was in a relationship, cheating with somebody who was in a relationship with, and all these people, I knew all of these people. And so I, I ended up just becoming privy to this information because I knew all of them. And eventually I'm like, wait, what? Wait, what? oh no. And someone else came and talked to me about this and said, Ryan, you have to do something about it. And I was like, I don't know that I do. And they're like, you have to do something about this. And I said, okay, but I don't know what to do. I don't know if you guys have faced a lot of moments like these. There's not like a manual out there for it. I didn't know what to do, honestly. So I called someone that I, I respect and care about. And I was like, hey, I'm gonna go have this really difficult conversation because this friend had asked to meet with me. So I was like, yeah, I'd love to meet with you. And so I'm gonna go have this really difficult moment and I don't know what to do or how to approach this. And they, they told me, you know, I, ahead of time, look up some of these Bible verses and some of these things and bring your Bible with you. And as they go to talk with you, you know, just let them know, here's what the Bible has to say. Make sure they understand that this is a sin and then ask them to stop it. Like tell them. And so I was like, okay. So I show up. And we sit down and my friend says, you know, this is the relationship I'm in. I'm like, actually, I know. I was hoping that we could talk about that because I'm having a hard time just knowing about all of this and all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, and I, it's tearing me up inside and I don't know what to do here. And I reach over and I pull out my Bible and I start thumbing through and I used to go, you know, here, there's this passage and I read it and it says adultery is bad. You know, they're easy to find. This passage, adultery is bad. This passage, adultery is bad. This passage, like, you know, these types of things. I'm like, you realize this is a, this is a sin, you're hurting people by engaging in this. And he just, he looked like a thousand pounds were suddenly sitting upon his shoulders. And he's just like, I know, I know. And he said, I don't know why I keep entering into this relationship. And I was like, then you need to stop it, right? Because I wanted sin to go away. So I told him, you should stop it, you see? We agreed it's sin and we walked through the passages and the things he now knows. And I said, well, then you should stop it. And he's like, I don't know how. And I was like, well, it's easy, you just stop. And then he looked at me and just, you know, was trying to explain some things. And I said, look, here's the deal. I'm not gonna continue to, because I read another passage about, you know, breaking off relationship with people who are in sin and these different things. And I said, so we've, we've articulated this and I've met with you and I'm not gonna continue to, to talk with you until you've made a different decision here. And I drew a hard line and I walked away. And do you know what it changed? Nothing. But here's what it did do. It made him into an excellent hider. Because now when he was around me, he needed to pretend like none of this stuff was real and going on. And he became an excellent pretender in this particular moment. I had another friend who at the very same time he was reached out to and he sat down with this gentleman as well and he made it really clear from the very beginning and I'm so grateful for this individual, you guys. He made it very clear from the very beginning that he was gonna just love him right where he was and wherever that took them, they were gonna walk that together. And so they started to meet with one another and my friend sat with him and he started to share about the difficulty of this relationship and this other gentleman looked at him and said, is this who you really wanna be? Is this what you want for your life? And he goes, how did you get here? How did you end up in this spot? And he talks to him about, started to talk to him about, do you realize who Christ says you are? Do you realize that you are fully and utterly loved? Do you, do you, do you understand this? And they started to process and work through this in real relationship. Do you know what happened at the end of that month meeting with that individual? My friend reached out to both parties involved and broke off this relationship. And here is what he said to me. He comes back around, he goes, I wanna let you know I did this. And at that point, I'm torn up inside because I just hated the way all of this was. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I need to learn how to do this. I need to learn how to step into these moments with people. And he said, you know, it's not that I just wanted the bad thing to go away. He's like, I, 
This isn't who I wanna be, and it's not the kind of person that, that I wanna be in my life. It's not what I want for my life, and I don't wanna hurt these other people, and so I chose something different. Love obliterates sin, friends. It might take time. It takes a whole lot of relationship, but love might just be the most potent weapon that you wield against sin. You know, we often think that the thing we need to do, and this is what I used to think a very long time ago when I'd have this kind of conversation. I used to just think, maybe you're like me, where you go, people just need to know that it's wrong. And when they know that something's wrong, they'll, they'll have the chance to stop doing it because if they just knew it was wrong, then they'd stop doing it. And that's how this works. So if you want sin to decrease, if you want brokenness to decrease, if you want bad things to go away, you just need to tell people that it's wrong so that they can know that. As if this is like, could you imagine? As if you guys in this entire room right now, like are sitting here going, we didn't know. As if that's me, like, Think about this. Did that, has that ever worked in your life where somebody was suddenly like, by the way, what you're doing is wrong. And you're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I'll stop now. Thank you. <laughs> no. It, it just like flat out doesn't work. I have a rule for my life. Never prescribe medicine for others that doesn't work for you. Like it, it just doesn't work. There's a part of this where we keep thinking that's the plan. That's the strategy. And you see this in churches and people and places all over the place that, man, if the world's going crazy around us or if the world's going crazy inside of us or whatever it is, what we need to do is identify the wrong, point it out, call it out and make the change. And I just want us all to wrestle very honestly in our own hearts and our own lives. Is that what works for you? When you think of the sin in your own life and the things that you struggle with, because we are all human beings, myself included, do you find yourself going, the honest truth is, yeah, just, I struggle with it because I just have no idea, or is the hardest part about it because you resonate with the words of Paul when he writes in the scriptures, I keep doing what I don't want to do and what I do want to do, I don't do, and it's tearing me up. Right? It's so hard. You know, love is that which obliterates sin. Love is that which makes sin disappear. For God so loved us that he obliterated it, <laughs> right? For God so loved us that he didn't put a blanket over your heart and be like, well, good, I don't need to look at that anymore. No, he gave you a new heart. <laughs> For God so loved us that he doesn't need to cover something that he can simply get rid of altogether. Do you understand? Love is the most powerful thing that we hold if we actually care about things like sin and brokenness and destruction and all kinds of things around us. It is the path, it is the plan, it always has been. And you know, if I were the devil, I know that's a weird thought, but it's helpful. If I were the devil, I've thought a lot about this. If I were the devil, you know what I'd want to do? I'd want to take a group of people that had actually had the genuine and honest experience of what it is to be fully loved by the God of the universe, who'd had hearts transformed by grace and who had lives opened up, who now were bound as a part of a one another called the church. And I would want to convince them that the most potent weapon they had was actually soft or shallow or weak or avoidance. And then, you know what I'd want to do? I'd want to convince them that things like guilt and condemnation and shame were the most powerful tools that they had. Because if I can get them to change how they operate, I don't even have to go fight a battle out there. They'll do it for me. Because friends, when somebody becomes a better hider, 
right? When you heap guilt and when you heap heap condemnation and you heap shame upon somebody and you pin them down under that and they have the choice to either own that as their identity and just keep living that way, which is kind of what happened when I had my conversation with my friend, or change the way they perceive themselves or hide the way they perceive themselves, right? By covering over this thing, they become a hider. That's the best possible place for Satan to just take a hold of their heart and allow brokenness and destruction and things to compound. It's in the hiding of those moments where all of that stuff gets so rough. And if you're thinking about this in your head, think about this from your own life and your heart. We feel this. We kind of know this already. Love is the most powerful tool that you have. Love obliterates sin. Friends, you, me, we are the church and you have something so powerful in you. You do. It is the love of Christ. And I'm not talking about some conditional form of love. I'm talking about the agape, unconditional love of Jesus Christ that resides in you. It's in you. It's transformed you. And it is a blessing and a gift to the people around you because a powerful life is one where love is above all else. And that brings us to the second thing here that I want to close with. And really, this is an application of the first. If you're going, so maybe how do I even live that out or what steps I take? Well, it's going to look different for all of us, but here's one path, and it's this. A powerful life has space prepared for others. Peter continues to write, and he says in verse 4, 8, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I am never going to forget this verse for my whole life. It is seared into me because I had a really weird experience where this verse was used and I will never forget it. And I'm gonna share that experience with you now. I was 19 years old. I was driving down Orange Grove Road on my way to a landscaping job, which is what I did at the time. At that point in time, Orange Grove, the entire way, it was just single lane, both directions, right? And as I'm driving, seven in the morning, not a lot of traffic out, on my way to, to get in the truck to go to a job site, you know, go to the boss's house, there's a, a man walking down the side of the street, this black man, and he's, stir- he's like short, but he's stocky, and he's got this massive black duffel bag, like really, really, like almost like military size, big black duffel bag. And I don't think anything of it, you know? I'm just driving around and going to work. And he looks over his shoulder, sees me coming, and in an instant, he grabs the bag, and he throws it into the middle of the street in the middle of my lane, in front of my car. I drove a Toyota Tercel. If you don't know what it is, just think of a clown car and slightly bigger and you've got me inside of it. It is a really small two-door car. And I'm driving this and this is gonna wreck my vehicle. And so I slam on my brakes and the tires skid to a stop just inches before this massive duffel bag. You have the moment like that where something scares you and the adrenaline rises and I raise my hands and I go, what was that? And without missing a moment, he opens my passenger door, grabs the bag, sits down in the passenger seat and shuts the door. And now this gentleman is bear hugging a giant black duffel bag sitting in the car next to me. And I lose my mind. I looked and was like, get out of my car. And he looks at me and he goes, take me to church. And I said, get out of my car. And he looks back at me and he goes, take me to church. And I yell at him again, you've got to get out of my car. And he looks at me, he says, are you a Christian? And this shook me for some reason. And I looked at him and I said, yes, why? I mean, we're close. It's a small vehicle, you guys. We were really close. I'm like, yes, why? And he says, I am a traveling preacher. And the Bible tells us that despite the fact that I'm a black man that you do not know, we are brothers and we are to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's the verse. 
And in that moment, I, I'm 19 and a little idealistic. So in that moment, I'm like, I think God just dropped a divine moment into my lap. Let's do this. And I, I didn't go to work. I was like, okay, I'll take you to church. Where do you need to go? And he goes, I don't know. You got to just take me to a church. And I said, okay. So I drove to a church and I pull up and I'm like, here's a church, man. I got to go. I'm late for my job. They're going to kill me. And he says, I can't go to this church. This is not the right church. And I was like, you're going to have to be more specific. I don't know where, like, where do you want me to take you? I can't keep doing this. And he goes, I don't know, but I need you to take me to church. So take me to church. And I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. So I get, I start driving back down Orange Grove and I pull into Faith Community, which I'd never been there or anything. I just, it's right there. And so I pull in and, 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 you know, we pull up to the curb and I'm like, here you go, man, here's a church. And he goes, this one will work. I need you to go inside and introduce me to the pastor. It is 7.30 in the morning, you guys. And I was like, Okay, so I go to get out of the car and he goes to get out of the car and we start walking forward and the moment he's far enough with that duffel bag, I turn around, run back into my car, jump in, start it, drive away. I have no idea what happened to that guy. As I drove away, I just prayed to God. I was like, well, Lord, I did my part with a little bit of hospitality. The rest is on yours and please make sure there's nothing bad in that duffel bag. And that's all I got. I have no idea. But I will remember for the rest of my life, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know, that word for hospitality is actually a really interesting word. It's a combination of two words smashed together. The first word is strangers and the second, or the first word is friends and the second word is strangers. That's what it is. It's a combination of friends and strangers, both those words smashed together, which effectively means this. Hospitality is when you love strangers like they are your friends. This is a very classic definition. This is why if you go to Central Asia or or many other countries with a massive hospitality culture, even though they don't know you, even though somebody doesn't know you, they're gonna make course after course of meals and they're gonna pull out all the stops and all the things for you because they, they want to honor you and lift you. They're treating you as a stranger like you're part of their family, like a friend. This is what hospitality is. Friends, hospitality is when you open up a seat next to you like we, any one of us could do at any point in time as a way of loving someone for someone that is different than you. You know why we have the word stranger? It's because it's rooted in the word strange. Those people are strange to you. (laughs) Hospitality is when you open up the seat next to you for someone who's a little strange to you because you don't know them or because they're not like you or because something's different. Hospitality is when you have a conversation with someone that you wouldn't normally have because they're a little strange to you. They're different or you wouldn't talk to them normally, but you look at them and you find yourself going, I want you to know that you have a place with me and I'll be the one who opens the front door. I'll be the one who puts out a place setting. I will be the one who makes my way to you to have the conversation. It doesn't have to be on you. Hospitality is when you share a meal or a gift with someone because you want them to know you value and you care about them. Because the honest truth is some people will never know how loved they are by God until they know how loved they are by you. And some people will never set foot in a church that you go to until they've been able to set foot in your life or in your home. Because hospitality becomes this amazing expression of real love. And if you're struggling with how do I put this above all else, you can start there. Hospitality isn't driven by a social media algorithm that keeps putting things that you like in front of you more and more and more. Hospitality is actually looking for that which is different from you to say, I wanna let you know that you have a place in the kingdom of God too because God's kingdom is big enough for us all. Hospitality is a profound act of love. Let's remember, Peter's writing to a group of people who's essentially become exiles and refugees. 
He's writing to a group of people who's struggling to protect their own life and whose every tendency would be to keep their heads down. And yet he's saying, above all else, keep loving one another. It's the plan. I don't care what the world is around you, the plan stays, the plan. And as you go, because remember, they're in a country or culture that's not their home. They're actually the alien. They're actually the refugee. They're actually the exile. He's saying, I know that's where you are, and I want you to be the ones who invite other people in. <laughs> I want you to be the ones even here who sees this as your opportunity to let love shine that much brighter because this is who you are and no one can take that away from you. Why? Because you are the church. And friends, what I know is that there are people in your lives right now, you may not be facing persecution in this way. You may not be wrestling in these same types of ways as the first century church. But what I know is that there are people in your life right here and right now that need your love need your relationship to open them up to the heart of God, right? There are still people in your life right here, right now that need to know that they are loved above all else, that that's put first. Do you know what people need when they're more scared and they're more fearful? The answer is not shame and condemnation and guilt to pin them down. They need a whole lot of love and a little bit of hospitality. Do you know what people need when they're feeling more broken or they're struggling in a deeper way? It's not guilt, shame, and condemnation. It's a whole lot of love and a little bit of hospitality. Do you know what people need in a world where churches are in decline because everyone's gotten so used to all of the fingers pointing at them instead of opening up to them? A whole lot of love and a little bit of hospitality. And I believe, friends, that we aren't just a church. We are the church who can step into that kind of thing and love people in a profound way because you are an extraordinary group of people. You have the love of God in you and through you. And I'm so excited to see how he will continue to use you and me, all of us together as Casas Church to love the community and one another in a powerful way because that's what a powerful life looks like. Let's pray. God, we come before you today and uh, we know life's a little hard sometimes. If there's anybody in here who's really struggling, Lord, I just pray that they would know that they're not alone. I pray that they would just sense your love and your closeness. And I pray that you teach us as a church how to best love them, Lord. Help us to keep love above all else, God. And Lord, as we go to step into just life as we always do, even here, even right now, God, open our eyes, open our hearts. Open us up, God, to see the people that are, are in front of us that we can love in a powerful way. Give us patience. Give us persistence of relationship. Give us kindness and warmth and empathy and compassion and all the things that we might need, God, to love people in an extraordinary way. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.